Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm your host, Nick Hirshon, guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by the College of Communication and the Arts at Seton Hall University. Just 14 miles from New York City, the college is a premier choice for students to study in the classroom with internationally recognized faculty and put their learnings into practice in the media capital of the world. The College of Communication and the Arts is committed to empowering students to lead, create, and communicate with integrity, passion, and excellence. And this is a very special episode for us because we are recording today before a live audience at the Conference of the Association for Education and Journalism and Mass Communication in Toronto, Canada. So thank you all for being here. And just for some context for our listeners, this is the largest annual gathering of journalism scholars. And today we welcome one of the very best. We have Matthew Pressman, an assistant professor of journalism at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. And last year, the Harvard University Press published Matt's thoughtful and thoroughly researched book, On Press, The Liberal Values That Shape the News. The book explores the emergence of a new style of reporting and selling the news in 1960s and 1970s America due to the proliferation of television, pressure to rectify the news media's dismal treatment of minorities and women, accusations of bias from left and right, and the migration of affluent subscribers to suburbs. Reporters began to interpret and analyze events for their readers, and they reimagined the core journalistic concepts of objectivity and impartiality. Matt describes in his book how the modern American press stands now at a precipice that could challenge its very survival. So the audience has just seen Matt accept the final award presented at our gala dinner tonight, the AEJMC History Division Book Award. Um, so again, let's give a round of applause for Matt's terrific research. <laughs> So Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for the kind introduction, and uh, it's a delight to be here at AEJMC. Of course, thank you for, for coming. So your book has received so much media acclaim, and there's probably a lot of questions you've already addressed, but I'm glad we can have you on, and I hope it will take in a little bit of a different direction tonight. So On Press looked primarily at changes over the past half century at the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, and you've explained in previous interviews you picked those newspapers because they were readily available in archives, and a lot of historians here in the audience tonight would appreciate that. But also, of course, they're major newspapers that represent the journalism of the time. So my first question for you there is, do you find that the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, set a kind of trickle-down precedent for other news organizations in this new idea of objectivity and partiality? Uh, I think so, certainly, yeah. I think the regional newspapers, newspapers in smaller cities, then as now, they do look to the most successful, most uh, widely circulated newspapers as something of a model. And it's not just an anecdotal impression. Certainly you see in the personal papers of the editors of the New York Times and the LA Times, there are, are many requests of, of, you know, well, what are you doing at your newspaper to address this issue? Uh, there's correspondence from uh, editors and executives at other news outlets asking for, for guidance. So I think, uh, I think they do really set the tone in a lot of ways. Mm, which is great that you focus then on them in the book. And a main objective you state in the book is the reimagination, as you call it, of objectivity and partiality. I thought this was really interesting. Today, journalism students are taught to follow the five W's and the H, right? Who, what, when, where, why, and how. But you describe how, even though that seems so essential to journalism today, that it wasn't always that way, and that one of those W's kind of changed over time. So can you get into that? Uh, yeah, well, I think what you're describing there is uh, what was really the, the growth and rise of interpretive reporting, which although some 
journalists and journalism professors had been calling for it, you know, beginning with Walter Lippmann even, uh, since the 20s and 30s, it only really begins to be practiced in the 1950s. And I think this sort of sets in motion a lot of the changes that, uh, that I talk about in the book. The, the fact that everyday reporters are now interpreting the news, and it's not just a privilege reserved for editorial writers and columnists and the, and the Sunday Review section, uh, that makes the, the reporting process open to a lot more criticism when reporters are, are issuing judgments and not just summarizing what somebody said or did the day before. And it seemed a key part of that change from objective reporting to something a little more interpretive, perhaps, is a, a person that we're all familiar with, Joe McCarthy, the senator from Wisconsin who rose to infamy as an anti-communist demagogue. And he changed how journalists viewed their roles. Uh, you say maybe they felt an obligation to shed the idea of fairness, give equal attention to all sides of an argument. Maybe it wasn't as important anymore and challenged McCarthy on some points. Um, so can you just talk a little more about Joe McCarthy, his role in this? Uh, sure. Well, I I think a, a couple things that I want to maybe clarify a little bit. Uh, I, I wouldn't say they were shedding the ideal of fairness, and I wouldn't even say that they were, uh, they were uh, abandoning objectivity. I think they're just redefining it a little bit. And uh, the way I see it, there, were, there was the primary motive for the rise of interpretive reporting was, was an economic one. The fact that newspapers with the rise of TV had to provide something that television news could not, and also they saw magazines having tremendous growth in this period, and magazines were, were quite interpretive in their uh, approach to the news. But I think that the, uh, the rise of McCarthy, who was really uh, abetted by the, by the newspaper press, uh, he went from a, you know, a nobody to a household name, and at the same time, most of the working journalists really thought he was uh, a demagogue and a fraud, but didn't say so, and didn't provide the, the context. They sort of had regrets after the fact. Um, I think that provided some, uh, an, a non-commercial motive, because you know, as we all know, right, journalists are, are very resistant to changes in their practice that they think are, are driven by commercial motives or by the business side of the paper. So I think it certainly helped to have this, uh, this public service motive also. And there was a, a third factor too, which, which journalists talked about quite a lot of the time, which was simply that the world is becoming so much more complicated. You know, it's the atomic age, it's the Cold War, it, the, the audience is becoming far more educated. So I think that was a factor too. Uh, but I really think the two big ones are the, the economic factor of needing to compete with television and the, uh, the sort of uh, political, I suppose, factor of trying to uh, not become sort of the tools of, of the next demagogue. And that kind of leads into my next question here. Um, I think we know where we're going to go with this. Uh, but there's a lot of parallels between things that are, you describe in your book, the phenomenon that was happening then into what's happening today. And you've been asked many different versions of this question. But uh, are you think journalists today are more open to that analysis or uh, maybe using certain terms that in the past would have been viewed as non-objective or biased, of, for example? when President Trump recently wrote a series of tweets telling four Democratic women of color to go back where they came from, and a lot of media outlets did not even hesitate to call those tweets racist, um, not even racially charged or what some people called racist, they just outright said racist. Do you think that that is tied into the history in the book? Uh, yeah, I think so, because I think the sort of distinction that got made in the 50s and 60s with trying to fit interpretive reporting into the, uh, the traditional definition of objectivity was that journalists were, uh, were being asked to make a distinction 
between their personal opinions and their professional judgments. And so professional judgment based on your expertise, your knowledge of this issue, the reporting that you've done, this is how you're seeing it versus personal opinion, this is how I feel about this thing. And so I think you see that same thing at play in the, uh, in the coverage of, uh, of Trump's tweets, you know, the, this particular tweet about the congresswomen. Uh, a lot of news outlets said, well, no, our, our professional judgment is that's a racist statement. It's not a matter of opinion, that's just what it is. Some news outlets felt like, oh, well, no, that's, that's still an opinion. Uh, but I think probably the, the majority in this instance went, came straight out and, and called it uh, you know, a racist statement. Mm -hmm. So I, I, think, uh, I think it is. It, it's really it's following a lot of these same, uh, these same principles and, and guidelines that, that really emerged in the 60s and 70s. And that's, that's the case I try to make throughout the book, that a lot of the practices that, that continue to, uh, to sort of guide journalism today emerge from that era. And when you talk about this reimagining then of impartiality or objectivity, I guess that leads into this notion of a liberal bias in the media and even calling Trump's tweets racist. Some would say, see, they, they're not, uh, they're siding with one side over the other, they're anti-Trump, anti-Republican. Um, but one of the interesting uh, ideas in your book is that there used to be almost a conservative bias in a way um, of the media and this idea of a liberal bias is a more recent kind of uh, concern. Can you just get into that a little? Yeah, sure. Uh, so. Certainly the, the complaint about the press prior to the 1960s, if there was a complaint about ideology, usually was from, uh, from the left. And you know, Adlai Stevenson in the 1952 campaign famously complained that there was a one-party press, and of course that one party was the Republican Party. Uh, the editorial pages of most newspapers leaned Republican. Uh, but, but beyond that, the, the news coverage was kind of by default uh, favored the, the powerful and, and the status quo. And this is a critique that got raised a lot in the 1960s and 70s from, from people on the left, you know, saying, well, there's a, a built-in bias with objectivity towards people in positions of power, right? The, the people who get written about are the, are the powerful, they're allied with, uh, with powerful institutions, and the, the dissidents and the, the young people, the people of color, their voices don't make it into the reporting, and so there's, there's this built-in conservative bias in a way. Even if, the, yes, the, the majority of reporters in their personal beliefs lean to the left, and that was the case you know, certainly as far back as the, the 1930s when Leo Rostin did his famous survey of Washington correspondence, even though that may be the, the way that the reporters feel, still the end product comes out with a, a bias that's in favor of the, the establishment or, or conservatives. And of course, we've been focusing on what reporters tend to think and how editors view this, but I'm wondering how, in your research, you found sources react to some of these changes in media coverage. Uh, for example, a politician, do you think that they tended to be, uh, maybe feel more comfortable with the old style of journalism, where they felt they'll get a fair shake, whether they're a Democrat or Republican? Do you think they feel more comfortable now, where it's like, I can go to the shelter of Fox News if I'm a Republican, or MSNBC if I'm a Democrat? Uh, yeah, certainly. This is another, I think, a really important change that I, uh, that I devote a chapter of the book to, uh, which is the, the rise of adversarial journalism. It's just a different approach to covering people in power. And it, it wasn't as if the 1960s and 70s was the first time it happened, but uh, there, you know, of course, there was the earlier period of muckraking, and then there was the earlier period of, of a partisan press. But, uh, but yes, there's, there's a huge change, I think, in the, the way that journalists approach their, their sources, their subjects, people who are in positions of power. And 
yeah, the, the, the relationship between journalists and their, and their sources changes dramatically. Um, and there, there are many examples of it. Um, and I, it's one of the more interesting ones to me, uh, one of the newspapers I write about a lot is the Los Angeles Times, as you mentioned. Uh, there's, this story's been told before, but the, uh, the relationship between Richard Nixon and the LA Times, which practically created him as a, as a political force in California um, when it was quite a conservative paper. Another reason why the press may have had sort of a conservative bias is there were many of the nation's most powerful news outlets did have a uh, Republican slant in their news pages, the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, Reader's Digest, Time, among others. Um, and that changes dramatically in, in the 60s. And Richard Nixon can no longer count in the LA Times. But it's not just coverage of the president. I, I get into uh, also the, the way that the relationship between the LA Times and the mayor of Los Angeles changes dramatically and, and they get into a major feud and the relationship between the, the, the LA Times and the Los Angeles Police Department changes dramatically to the point where you have the, the chief of police of Los Angeles labels Bill Thomas, the editor-in-chief of the LA Times, public enemy number one uh, in the 1970s in a public statement. So yes, it's, it's a dramatic change, I think. And then as we're talking about this, you know, I just wonder what are your opinions now of doing done all this research, do you think, obviously we've heard objectivity can never be truly achieved, but should it be something that should be a goal of ours? Should we strive for objectivity as journalists? Or I know it's a very complicated question, you probably spend a long time talking about it, but uh, you know, after you've done all this research, I'm just curious how you come away. I mean, I think that it's not necessary for there to, to, to be a, a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, objectivity might be appropriate for some news outlets and not for others. Uh, different news outlets may have different definitions of objectivity. Uh, I think the, the most important thing for, for any news outlet is to be fair, to be accurate. Of course, accuracy is key, but, but fairness too, right? Giving uh, an accurate and uh, honest representation of the other side's views uh, and being transparent about your reporting processes. You know, a lot of uh, journalism commentators have, have talked about transparency as sort of uh, the, the new objectivity in a way. And I, and I think there's, uh, there's something to that. I also think that the word itself can be problematic, and this was something that was evident as, as far back as the 1960s and 70s, I write about in the book, the, the, uh, the publisher and, and the editor-in-chief of the LA Times in this period, they didn't like the word objectivity. They stopped saying, hey, we're trying to report the news objectively, because they felt like that means different things to different people. Uh, when we say objective, they think that we mean just the facts, ma'am, and no interpretation. Uh, and so the publisher of the LA Times, Otis Chandler, said, I loathe the word objectivity. I don't want to hear it. And what we're, we're after is, is fairness and honesty. Although really, when you came down to it, the, the, uh, the kind of pre reporting practices that they wanted their staff to follow really were the same as the way many other people were defining objectivity. So I think a lot of it still is a question of, of semantics, I think, and, and it's worth interrogating you know, how much the, the use of that word uh, gains for news outlets. So one of the spectacular things about your research is that it remains very relevant. I think it will for, for years because we can keep looking back at how this began and you know, how we're seeing it play out in today's media coverage. Uh, so I was asking you about Trump's tweets being deemed racist, but some other phenomena you described in the book reimagination of objectivity, the move to interpretive reporting. Uh, can we see that play out in the way the press has covered other things? 
for example, we're recording this podcast on August 6, 2019, and there have been a slate of mass shootings recently, Gilroy Garlic Festival in California, El Paso, Texas, Dayton, Ohio. Um, what have you learned while researching your book that can explain the kind of coverage of maybe the gun control issue and how that has changed and we're seeing newspapers on the front page even coming out and uh, not even in editorial sometimes it seems like they're coming out in their news coverage saying this has to end and calling for action. Yeah, I mean, that certainly is crossing a line into, into advocacy, but in some instances, right, newspapers will, uh, will take that step. I mean, one, one parallel to me is in coverage of the, uh, of the civil rights movement, uh, especially the, the early sort of heroic phase of the civil rights movement to end Jim Crow in the South. Uh, the, the, most of the press in the North and, and major cities in, in the West and Midwest were unapologetically sympathetic to the, uh, to the protesters, right? The, to, sympathetic to the, the nonviolent protests led by Martin Luther King Jr. and others, right? And you know, many, uh, many people who opposed them thought that this was an early sign of, of liberal bias. And you know, David Greenberg wrote a, uh, a journal article about this uh, some years ago as being sort of the, uh, the starting point for the accusation of liberal bias. But I think there's another instance where a lot of journalists saw it as such a sort of moral imperative that, uh, that the normal rules of objectivity weren't applied in quite the same way. Are you seeing that play out in any other particular form of news coverage? Specifically, I think, of course, about politics. And right now, we have the Democratic primary going on. The debates, you know, have been happening. Uh, but do you see any sort of change there in the news values? I know there's been some criticism that journalists tend to look for conflict, and when they're covering a debate, for example, they tend to look at Kamala Harris versus Joe Biden, and they attacked each other, and maybe not really looking for something more substantive. Um, so, are, are you seeing it play out there too? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think and this comes back to a, a complaint that's been made, a criticism that's been made about objectivity as practiced for a long time, which is that uh, journalists sort of sidestep the important issues uh, like policy stances in favor of conflict and the horse race, where it's easier to come off as objective. It's easier to seem like you're not taking a side if you're not dissecting what this politician really stands for, or you know what their uh, what their past actions say about them. If you're just chronicling, you know this one said that and the, and the other one said this, or if you're just saying you know the, this is what the polls say, this is how much money they've raised, then you can't really be accused of, of bias as as easily. Mm-hmm. Well, and we can talk about your terrific book forever. Um, <laughs> we're going to have to wrap up pretty soon, but. I want to ask you the final question we always ask guests of the Journalism History Podcast is why does journalism history matter? You've just spent so much of your life uh, studying it. It's your career. Um, You're coming all the way to Toronto for a conference to discuss it. So why do you think journalism history matters? I think that journalism history matters for the same reason that that all history matters, right? Is to, to understand where we came from, how we got to this moment, what we can learn from the past, uh, and I think journalism has history matters in particular because journalism is, is so important in, uh, in a democratic society. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it really uh, affects almost every aspect of, of the culture, of, of politics, of society. It's how people form their views. It's how they make sense of their world. So, uh, so certainly, yeah, I, I think it's crucial. 
Terrific. Well, thank you again, Matt, for being here. Uh, thank you to our audience. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Journals of History podcast. And additional thanks to our sponsor, the College of Communication and the Arts at Seton Hall University. Once again, thank you to the live audience here at the AJMC conference in Toronto. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Yes. And uh, until next time, I'm your host, Nick Hershon, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.